Welcome into the Warehouse, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles and Major League Baseball. The Warehouse is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome into the warehouse. As always, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Loftus and Matt Corey, and excited to jump in and speak to both of them. First, a word from the sponsor, Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. They're a third-generation family business established in 1959. They're located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster. They're the oldest floor-covering store in Carroll County and one of Maryland's longest-running flooring businesses. For all your flooring needs, think Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. So good evening, gents. How you guys doing? Doing, doing well. Good. Doing well. well. Glad to talk. Glad to be here this evening. Yeah. yeah. So didn't, didn't know who should answer that one, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think we're both good. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's always a mistake. I, I as soon as I get it out of my mouth, realizing I you know got a point on oh, one of the two of you. Yeah. But my, <laughs> my my thought there, but we'll jump right in. I got uh, Adam Jones. He commented in an article with the Baltimore Sun. Uh, last couple of days that when his playing career ends in Japan, he could be interested in managing the Orioles. This led to a fair amount of discussion at the board, uh, uh, really just about a couple of different tracks there. What do you look for in a manager? Uh, does Jones have those qualities? What about um, sometimes quality players sometimes struggle to be uh, uh, managers in terms of uh, – Sometimes uh, they don't have match up in terms of, uh, I guess, struggling with uh, players who don't put in the same work or can't perform as they did. Um, but just kind of general thoughts, uh, and Stephen, we'll start with you, just uh, what you uh, thought of that. Yeah, so Adam Jones does seem like a guy that would be a good managerial candidate for any team, but of course, particularly for the Orioles, given his history here. And I mean, much of the strategic decision making that goes on or that would previously fall to a manager comes down from the front office with it being told to the manager, bench coaches and the like. So the manager has to be someone who can be that go-between between the front office and the players in that sort of way, the type that can lead the team and connect with his players. And many players have so much respect for Adam Jones. Christian Walker, uh, when he was with the uh, Diamondbacks and Adam Jones went to the Diamondbacks, commented about how he wants the opportunity to treat young players how Adam Jones treated him. So that respect that Jones commands will be would be the type of thing that you'd like to see out of a manager. So really the only question that could come up would be, is Adam Jones well-versed in analytics, which in the sense that if you're going to be working from the front office down to the players, you have to be able to be able to work with the analytical point of view. And there might be questions on that, but same sort of thing. When he came, when he went to the diamondbacks, there was a 2019 article that said, in regards to his defensive positioning and the defensive metrics, how glad he was to have that information placed before him, which is as much of a condemnation of the previous regime of the Orioles for maybe not having that information there. But once again, just that seems to honestly put that question even out of my mind. So, I mean, for me, Jones just seems like a great candidate in that he can uh, have the respect of the players. He's able to speak to the 
concerns of ball players, particularly black ball players, as someone who has um, gone through the struggles from the um, from the treatment that he's received from fans throughout his career. And honestly, if the Orioles don't snap him up as a manager or if a team doesn't snap him as, up as a manager, Major League Baseball should bring him in as part of their response to many of the growing societal concerns that come in here, whether it's being able to bring more uh, African-American players into organized ball or, again, dealing with those societal issues, or even the Players Association should bring him on as someone who has experienced not only these concerns, but also the kind of late career free agency crunch that he uh, received in 2018. In, in short, someone should bring him on because he is an excellent ball player, had an excellent career, and I think he has a second stage beyond the field that I think he can contribute so, so much to baseball. Yeah, Steve, a lot of excellent thoughts there. I mean, I mean I'll start with, I feel managerial strategy kind of overblown, and you mentioned that, and really what I'd be looking for if any manager is kind of a, a leader of men, somebody to communicate uh, with the team, coaching staff, press and public, and then obviously the management, and then uh, you kind of hit on the analytics side, and it's really for there, it's just uh, that he's going to at least be uh, willing to listen and to what the front office provides uh, there. Uh, Matt, kind of your general thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, Stephen hit on most of them. I, I think he, he did a, a great job sort of summarizing all the, you know, the reasons that, you know, that Jones would be a good candidate. I'm The only thing that I, you know, whenever I hear people talk about current players or recently retired players even, um, you know, managing I, I think a lot of them don't necessarily realize what a grind it is, um, you know, to be a manager. I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's more difficult than being a player. You know, your your day is is, I would say, rarely your own. You know, you're you're especially nowadays you're dealing with front office, you're dealing with player concerns, you're organizing and planning for the game, you're dealing with coaches, you're dealing with media. There's a you know, it's, it's a, <laughs> and not that I've ever been a manager, certainly not. Uh, but I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very full day in a way that, that playing isn't. Um, so I, I always kind of in my back of my head say, well, you know, you, you might have a lot to offer, but there's not a lot of guys who, who do that. And, and I think the reason is probably obvious, you know, Jones went from making $10 million a year, you know, with the Orioles or whatever it was, um, why wouldn't he drink daiquiris on a beach somewhere? Like he totally could do that. Now, I think Stephen makes a great point when he says that Jones has a lot to offer the game, and I think that's definitely true. I think I think the question is, does Jones want to offer those things to the game, or does he just want to spend some time chilling out, uh, you know, somewhere? Um, but he certainly could do it. I I agree with that. I mean, and we've actually seen players go, you know, right from playing to. Uh, to managing. So it's, it's definitely uh, a thing now that, you know, the, the more modern game and the way that analytics and the, and you know, the relationships with the front office work, you don't need to spend 20 years in the minor leagues learning how to manage a game anymore. It's just not necessary. Yeah. I and mean, he's in Japan, he's still playing and, and, you know, maybe the part of that is collecting a check, but the other parts probably that he uh, just strikes me as a guy that one of the plays as long as somebody will pay him to play. Uh, and uh, he was a guy that posted up, uh, liked coming, being in the lineup every day, uh, you know, 
played hard, cleats up in the second, you know, kind of an old school mentality. Uh, one of the things you were, you, you were, as you were talking about, one of the things I thought of was he struggled with the idea of uh, having uh, days at DH, which he just, which he talked about at the time of uh, he, he couldn't manage his energy, <laughs> you know, from the bench and the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just wondered about that, you know, as a manager, it would be a different role. You're not out there playing and you're sitting there three hours a night watching, watching others, but you know, things for him to think about, but interesting to think about a, a post career for him. Uh, and, you know, he has a lot of tenets and, and things really, again, going back to me, checking the boxes of, uh, he's accountable and, uh, you know, he was a guy that currently posted up uh, in the locker room. He'd be there with the press, win or, uh, win or lose. He would be somebody that would be accountable. So uh, he does check a lot of the boxes for me. If he's interested, it'll be, it'll be curious to see if the Orioles find a, find him in some capacity. I would imagine if he wants to stay involved with the game in any any level, the Orioles uh, will embrace that and put their arms around him. Or, you know, if they're smart, uh, he's somebody they connected with uh, uh, with the city, and and you know, it would just make sense to wrap their arms around that. Chris, can uh, I make a quick point about that? Yep. I, I think that's a, a, a really good um, and important point, too. It, you know, we've seen a lot of players who have a lot of value to the teams that they've come up with. You know, over time, you develop that that um, that reach with the fans and, and with the, um, you know, the local uh, businesses and, and charities and all these sort of things. We've seen these guys get shipped off elsewhere. Um and I think, you know, Jones obviously, you know, left free agency. They Orioles, I guess, didn't offer him a deal, or certainly not a comparable one. Um, so, you know, having bringing that connection back and and uh, and trying to make use of it is, you know, it, it, it's not the next money ball, but it's a it's a smart thing for a, an organization to do, especially one you know like the Orioles that is really analytically focused and might end up making some of those moves with a guy like Trey Mancini, you know? Um, so having those, having that connection somewhere, you know, to say, Hey, we are not all just, you know, heartless, uh, <laughs> spreadsheet automatons. Um, and, uh, speaking as a heartless spreadsheet automaton myself, um, well, well, I, I that, think that, that could have value. That leads well into the, the next point, And that was kicked around at the board again with, with this coming up was Jones uh, left the Orioles before the 19th season. And, uh, you know, Jones talked at the time. He didn't really want to be part of a, a, a rebuilding uh, process. And he was at the end of his major league playing career. I mean, he wanted to go somewhere where he had a, a prospective chance of winning. Uh, and he certainly understood that. But the Orioles didn't make much of an effort to uh, retain him. And I thought that was the right decision at the time, you know, whether the 19 team wasn't going to have, it wasn't going to have the wave of prospects that are now arriving in the majors, but you had players internally that to me that you needed to take a look at. uh, And you knew Jones was not going to be part of, your next winning team, you know, years later. Um, so 
to me, if you were having him back in 19, it was it was either going to be kind of ceremonial or it's about him providing you know, serving as a mentor. But you can't really serve as a mentor if the players that are comprised on the roster are not going to be definitively are not going to be part of your future. And certainly the 19 roster didn't have have that. And also at this point, if he was still an Oriole, he'd be taking at bats away from guys that you certainly want to be looking at and seeing if they can potentially be part of your next quality quality team. But, uh, you know, I, Matt, I'll just let you kind of expand on, on where, where you were there. Do you think the Orioles should have made a larger effort uh, to retain him, whether or not he would have decided to stay or not? Do you think they should have just on a on a basis of he's been a face of the franchise <laughs> type of player? Yeah, it's hard to hard to say. I mean, I think you make a compelling case that, you know, there's when when you're you know, when you're tearing things down like the Orioles did, you know, that those at bats and roster spots should ideally go to players who could potentially have uh, you know, a role with the team long term. Um, or could provide value to the team in other ways through trade, et cetera. Um, you know, and having Jones on the roster is a limitation in that way. Um, you know, I think, I think there is value to that, uh, having him though. I mean, you know, like, like we just discussed, there's also, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the fact that he could be a, you know, a, a guy who can help, um, you know, create that, that positive clubhouse culture for when young guys come up. Um, you know, I, even if the guys in the room at the time aren't necessarily going to be the ones there long-term, um, I think that's what you, you want a positive, um, you know, inclusive clubhouse culture for when young guys do come up and they'll learn the ropes through that. And they'll, that'll be the expectation going forward. Um, and I think that has some value. That said, I think the Orioles did the, you know, did the right thing for the most part. Um, you know, they were ripping it down. They're going for draft pick, um, you know, trying to tear things down to get the best selection and the most draft pool they could. And, you know, having a player who projects to be good could, <laughs> could be a problem uh, in that respect. Yeah. Uh Steven, obviously, he's been middling. He was middling in 19 with Arizona, went to Japan. We can call Japan 4A. He was pretty middling last year in Japan. Just put a bow on the on the Jones talk there. Do, do you think he uh, – and what your thoughts are there? <laughs> I don't know if he would have taken a deal. I mean, by all accounts, he seems like a very competitive individual and would not have wanted to be <sighs> – experienced a hundred losses and all that way. And yes, you want to play the younger players. Yes. You'd probably have to pay Adam Jones more than the 3 million that the diamondbacks paid him. And yes, there's a good chance that he doesn't make up that value on the field. But as I said last week about Fernando Tatis, not all value is on the field. I would have liked to see to have seen at least a little more. I mean, and it's hard to say how much effort was put in on the Orioles part, but I would have liked to have seen a little more effort so that, again, I don't know whether he would have taken it, but just 
something to, and again, I think there is value that he can bring as a mentor, even if it's um, mentoring the next set of mentors. But again, I would have liked to seen a little bit more, but I still don't think he would have been on the 19 Orioles ultimately. Uh, kind of interesting point there on the uh, hockey assist in terms of uh, mentoring, and, and, and maybe there's uh, something there in terms of continuity and lineage. Uh, and uh, uh, But uh, something for another day. I have a feeling uh, maybe this would be his last year uh, playing professionally and as the Orioles start to uh, move towards being good again, there'll be further discussion of is Hyde going to be the guy that takes the Orioles over the top or will they go somewhere else? And if they go somewhere else later on, maybe Jones's name becomes uh, somebody in play. Um, so uh, let's take a look at the Orioles bullpen. Uh, how would you build it? What do you question? And uh, Stephen, we'll start with you. So, I mean, where the Orioles are now, I, I've always been of the kind of opinion that a strong bullpen is a necessity for a contender and a luxury for a uh, rebuilder. So for the Orioles, to a certain extent, I'd love to see a bullpen full of uh, young guys and tradable pieces. You know, give the young guys first cup of coffee, stash the rule five guys, pick up lottery tic- ticket prospects off of trades around July, all that sort of thing. So that said, you know, separate of the ideal of how I would, you know, love for things to ultimately go like, you know, this particular year in 2021, we're going to need multiple long guys just from the kind of post 2020 transition. And, you know, guys who miss out on the rotation, there seem to be a lot of those middle class of uh, starting pitchers that we're trying to sort through. So maybe a couple of those guys are long guys who, you know, flip in for a, uh, you know, give a guy a rest day or something like that. And in general, I'd love to see, you know, lots of high spin, high movement guys. I'm a big fan of the positionless bullpen, you know, get rid of this whole traditional closer setup, just get your high leverage guys, put them out there when you need them. But in terms of what I'd like to see, there are a couple of guys on the free agent market. I mean, the Orioles aren't going to do it, but I'd love to see them, you know, at least consider Brad Peacock or Shane Green to see if, you know, maybe they can flip them in uh, July to a contender. But on the positives, I'm personally all in on Tanner Scott. I'd love to see what he can do this year. All the metrics seem to say that he's got an elite slider. He's just got to locate it somewhere. And the rest of the guys, I mean, Harvey, Fry, Tate, all this. I think they're going to be fine. I think the bullpen's going to be better, a lot better than the last few years. But again, I'd like to see a lot of high spin, high velocity, and positionless pen. Just get guys' innings and see what sticks. And Matt, how about yourself? How do you see a uh, bullpen being comprised? Yeah, I mean, I think that's you know what Steven said. <clears throat> excuse me, is is you know what what the Orioles should and, and likely will do. You know, the I think it's going to be a challenge for every team this year. You know, to ramp pitchers back up to a normal season long workload, um, and you know the Orioles have you know this you know rotation with a a lot of young guys guys that are not experienced even the guys that are slightly older in their mid 20s don't have that much experience so there's a you know a likely need for a lot of innings out of the bullpen um and so you want to have these guys who can come in and and you know do multiple innings i, I one thing that i don't think even mentioned was i think having guys who have options is really important you want to be able to send guys down and bring them back up and that effectively elongates your, you know, your bullpen. Um, you you're sort of going from a regular size bullpen to 
whoever you happen to have on the 40 man roster who you can move up and down, you know, in the triple A rotation and bullpen. Yeah. That was one thing the prior regime uh, excelled at. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a really common thing. You know, I know the Red Sox have been doing it a lot the last couple of years and it can be frustrating because you just don't know as a fan, like who's in the bullpen today. But um, you know, if a guy, if a guy is throwing multiple, you know, innings or multiple um, appearances and, you know, you're using an option already, you can just send him down and bring another guy up and you've got a fresh arm instead of a guy you, you got to stay away from. So that gives you, um, you know, that, that, that sort of advantage. Um, part, it's part of the reason why I think the two rule fives are, are not likely to uh, stick. Uh, it does limit you. It's definitely true. Yeah. But it's a, uh, it's an interesting mix. I mean, uh, I'm with Steven, with Scott, uh, love the arm. Uh, last year was a step forward. I'm interested to see Harvey, if he can stay over the course of the year. And then Dylan Tate's the arm. I, I you know, I really uh, like and want to see there. But then uh, it's an interesting mix of the rest. And, and then it's it's how do they want to build it? And will they build out of guys that are uh, capable of being like the piggyback type of starters there and, and capable of going multiple innings. Uh, but it's interesting group. I'm sure you guys will look at it during the year. Uh, we'll get back to that. Uh, and the last Orioles topic for the night, uh, we spoke last week on the possibilities of the Orioles utilizing a six-man rotation. We, we spoke last Thursday night, and I think by Friday morning, the Orioles were saying that was a – possibility they were looking at and I, I believe you guys said well it wasn't something that that you're real excited about and certainly understand but i kind of feel like it's a likely to happen at, at least for a portion of the year and i don't think they're going to do like some system-wide uh change i just think they're going to uh utilize it at least for some time in terms of uh, and probably more on the piggyback situation is how I kind of envision it. They have a number of guys I think they're going to want to eventually see and uh, some arms they're not going to want to go through uh, a lineup twice, but they can get three innings out of. So I'm kind of interested to see how that uh, works out. But uh Matt, kind of going to your last point, I think it's a good one in terms of the options and how that's going to work out. And I think they kind of go hand in hand there with the bullpen and then then the six-man idea. Um, but just uh, since we covered it last week, don't have to have a lot of thoughts, but just, you know, just take there with the Orioles saying it's something that they're looking at. I mean, it totally makes sense for them to look at it. And I, I think Stephen and, uh, and I last week said that it does make sense for them. You know, I don't, I don't think it's any any different. I mean, I think you want to look at every option to, um, you know, to keep guys healthy and, you know, to limit, um, you know, limit danger to to guys who could have value to you long term. Um, so it, it absolutely makes sense to do it. Um I, I don't know about implementing it long term, you know, um, but yeah. like you said, Chris, maybe doing it, you know, here and there for a couple a couple turns or or whatever. I mean, presumably the organization is is tracking, you know, workload, which, which isn't just innings pitched, but it's, you know, it's appearances and pitches and throwing on an off day and, you know, what, whatever the stress is of an outing. So, you know a 40, you know, bullpen, 40 pitch bullpen may be different than throwing 35 high pitch high, or high stress pitches in a, in the sixth inning of a game. Um, 
you know, presumably they're, they've got, you know, metrics and, and, and stuff to track all those, that sort of thing. So they should have some sort of idea of who is and, and isn't, um, you know, or, or who doesn't, doesn't need to be protected on a given day or, um, and so, you know, you can plan these things out, I think. Um, so yeah, it makes, this is, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, Matt and Steven, just to wrap that up, uh, with the, Shortened season last year, and you know, workload is going to be a question kind of all year. I think we're going to be talking about. Do you think this just winds up being kind of a uh, a little bit of an odd looking season in terms of uh, uh, of, of pitching, right? Yeah, I, I think this is just a post twenty twenty getting through this year uh, with as many or with as few complications as possible. You know, as long as this you know, this works, gives young guys innings, keeps people healthy and doesn't ruin their development by messing with their off days or their head or anything like that, you know, go for it. I, th- I think it will work fine. All right. We got a few uh, MLB topics in general to go through. We're going to go a little rapid fire, at least with the first one here. Uh, Seattle Manor, Mariner CEO, Kevin uh, Maffer was uh, resigned. Uh, if I'm sure everyone listening to this has, seen the commentary by now and that was uh, we were talking a little bit off the air it wasn't particularly surprising I, I guess we, we all accept uh, believe that this is what's being said behind closed doors it's just the fact that it was said uh, out loud but it was you know uh, outside of the uh, the race racist and bigoted uh, talk but in terms of keeping players down and getting that extended time uh, but you know, a quick black eye for the game right as spring training begins uh, and just completely unnecessary. We'll just kind of go through this quickly. Just uh, quick thoughts there, Matt. Sorry. Yeah. Um, you, you want me? I, yeah. I, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I mean, it, it it sucks and it's not uh, in it's not at all surprising. You know, um, you know, like you said, this is the kind of stuff that we know is being said, you know, behind closed doors and what, what makes this other than, you know, the, the racism and, uh, you know, those sort of things. Other than that, this is just the way teams operate now. And they're saying, not only saying these things, but doing them, which, you know, is honestly against the, you know, the spirit of the, um, you know, of the CBA. So I think, you know, it sucks now, you know, from a, from a sort of fan standpoint and there's some media attention attached to it and Mather had to resign and, and whatever. And, you know, in two weeks we'll, we'll just move on and people will mostly forget about it. But I think there's a, you know, there's a real, there's a bit of damage, you know, to, to the, the negotiations and the, you know, the CBA that's coming up that this, you know, points to, I, I'm not sure if this is, I'm sure this is not news to the players association, but the fact that it was so baldly stated may have done some damage to, um, you know, make negotiations more difficult between the the players and the owners when, uh, when they go to negotiate. Yeah, certainly it was already acrimonious. This probably just adds to it. Stephen, I'll let you add any commentary you have there. Just a quick wild card for you. Do you think the next CBA you think they'll address anything in terms of uh, service time and the, the the gaming situation that goes on right now? Which, yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, um, I'll get to that. I got a little bit of a spiel here on this one. So yeah, <laughs> obviously these comments come in two parts. And the first one is that, you know, the comments about Julio Rodriguez, Hisashi Iwakuma and the teenage prospects signed in the Dominican and all are disgusting. And he's been raked over the coals, rightly so for it. And it's even more disgusting when you realize that he has a history of workplace harassment behind him as well, which, you know, it's in some ways amazing that he had a job even at this point. And honestly, individuals more competent than us have commented on this aspect of the situation. And so I don't want to take away from their words by adding any more beyond the fact that it is disgusting. So secondly, the baseball side of it, you know, the comments about Jared uh, Kelnick. And it clearly, yes, does imply service time manipulation. And yes, every team does it, and it isn't technically against the rules. But a couple of years ago, so Michael Bauman at The Ringer wrote a piece about service time and service time manipulation. This was at the time of uh, Fernando Tatis and Vladdy Jr. when they were about to come up. And I'm going to steal a phrase from him that I like that ultimately he said that baseball is an entity that functions not only on uh, laws, but norms. And these are norms that we expect both uh, Major League Baseball as the owners and the Players Association to follow. And over the past 10 to 15 years, these norms have slowly been crumbling. And the most blatant of them is service time. I mean, Chris Bryant, Fernando Tatis, Vlad Jr., they were kept down much longer than they should have been by any stretch for dubious reasons at best. And incidentally, say what you will about the Orioles, but at least they called up Manny Machado in 2012 when it would have been easy to keep them down in the minors until June 2013. So you know, they're not innocent entirely, but at least they did in one instance the right thing on that one. And to a certain extent, when the norms of the game are being ignored in this way, they're going to have to be negotiated or outright legislated when the norms of fielding competitive teams is uh, violated, particularly in extreme circumstances. There's going to have to be some sort of disincentivization of being non-competitive somehow. I don't know what that is, but they're going to have to look at it. When the norm of spending on your team is ignored, there's going to have to be certain levels of spending that are negotiated, whether it's a cap or a floor or some combination of both. And when it comes to service time, when the idea of playing your best players is ignored for the goal of retaining extra um, financial considerations, teams need to be given incentives to play the players. So yeah, the 2021 CBA is coming up and it's a black eye for the game. That's going to keep on coming up over the next year. And the major league player, uh, the players association and major league baseball are going to have to do something about service time, about tanking, about salary floors and caps. I study the draft and I think the rule for draft needs a little bit of work. Arbitration systems, you know, so much of arbitration is run on saves when who cares about saves and wins to a certain extent. Um, and all of these things are tied together. And for the long-term health of the game, not only from a fan's perspective, but I mean, just in general, from competitive balance from fans for players and owners working together they have to talk about these issues and fight them out and it's probably going to be painful and there's a decent chance i think that there's going to be a strike or a lockout of some form but they have to get addressed at some point and this might be the stick of dynamite that sets it all off so honestly these negotiations are going to be probably the most painful we've seen since 1994 when i couldn't even remember what was going on in baseball at that point but it's going to be a mess, but I think, again, if they can work it out, baseball will be better for it. Uh, I like a lot of that, Stephen. Uh, hopefully we don't wind up with a strike or a lockout, but 
I do uh, believe that they have to be uh, discussed out further. And, you know, I would just like, as a fan, not to constantly be thinking, well, uh, Adley Rutschman, uh, you know, I'd like his arrival to the majors to be dictated on when he is ready as a prospect and not be thinking of, okay, well, it's now May 22 and the Orioles have accrued the additional year of service time. Now we can bring him up. And that's a top prospect. But you can make an argument that, like, uh, Yunziel Diaz, that, you know, if you weren't thinking about service time with him, he could be in the mix this spring to be possibly winning the job in left. And then there's another, you know, there's offshoots of that conversation with the rest of the roster. But he could compete. But when the Orioles know that they can easily put him in AAA for two months, get another year of service time and kick that discussion further, it's an easy decision. And I, I can't say the Orioles are wrong on either case. Get the additional year of control. This is the rules that exist. Play You have to play, you know, play that game. But it, I think it would be better for baseball as a whole if this can be addressed and you can, and, and fans aren't thinking about that and teams can just, worry about putting their best product directly on the field while also maintaining uh, yeah, the control as best they can. But something for another day, but interesting thoughts there. Let's uh, – I've kept you guys uh, a little bit long. Let's kind of go rapid fire a little bit here. Um, Ten crucial positional battles for contending teams. That was an article at uh, CBS, and I'll let you guys uh, – give me your thoughts on, on which of those battles interested you the most. And, Matt, you can lead off there. Um, the White Sox fifth starter is the one I picked of the of the group. Um, the White Sox are a really interesting team this year. You know, they they've not been a good team for a while, but they've got you know this sort of bubbling up of young talent that I think the you know Orioles fans are probably looking forward to. Um, and one of those you know one of those sort of aspects is is the fifth starter spot, which. You know, Carlos Rodon and another option is Michael Kopech. Rodon is the third overall pick. Um, and he's, you know, flashed, I guess, occasionally over his career, but not certainly been the kind of guy that, um, you know, that people hoped or expected he would be when he was picked that high. And then Kopech was a, a high draft pick by the, by the Red Sox and traded in the Chris Sale deal. Um, he's got an electric arm or did before he went down with Tommy John. Um, and so he's coming back and he's an incredibly talented guy, you know, but you never know coming back from any kind of injury, what, what he might have. And I think recently uh, their GM Rick Hahn said that they might use Kopech in the bullpen. So that would be kind of weird if they did, I guess, but um, yeah, Steven, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> So anyway, I, I'm curious how that'll how that'll play out, um, especially because you know the White Sox figure to be a you know a postseason contender. Yeah, I definitely think the White Sox are right in that mix. Certainly one of the more interesting American League teams. Stephen, about for you, what stood out? So for me, it's the tandem of the Mets and Braves fifth starters, because honestly, I think the division could come down to that battle. I mean, they, I say both the Braves and the Mets get one of their main men back uh, midseason. The Mets will get hopefully Syndergaard back at some point and the Braves get Soraka. But still, that leaves 15 to 20 games that your fifth starter is going out there. And the division is crucial for those because... 
if you, I, I think the one who doesn't win the division likely picks up the wild card, and that means you got a one game playoff, assuming they stick with the you know uh, five team or yeah the uh, old system of the playoffs. You got to go out there and play whoever loses the NL West, and then immediately go face the winner likely of the NL West. So the division is key to avoiding that, and so whoever is able to really fill those 15 to 20 games has a huge advantage in a really tight division. Good thoughts from you guys. Uh, I think that's a good point to end uh, tonight. Uh, we'll get back next week. Grapefruit action will be starting. We'll see if there's any uh, further news out of uh, Sarasota with the Orioles. And then we'll get into our, uh, we'll start our divisional uh, overviews. We'll do the NL Central uh, next week, and maybe we'll also kick in the American League Central just for uh, for bookends there. Um, but uh, for Stephen and for Matt, thanks for listening. Come join us at the at the site BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Join the uh, discussions. Check out the most recent articles from uh, these two. And my thanks for uh, listening. Take care. <laughs>